0: don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more. This is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like,
1: uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 56, and today we are talking about Do the Right Thing, directed by Spike Lee from 1989, uh, year I was born, so... Was when I was trying to think of how old this movie was, I was like, "Oh, that's easy." Um, Yeah. So this movie, you know, thirty-one years old. I mean, that's easy math, anyway. I should be able to figure that out. But uh, (laughs) with a a lot of themes and a lot of uh, sort of emotions that it evokes that are incredibly relevant today. uh, Well,
0: I was going to. It's interesting you say it that way because I was just going to say it's it's nice to sometimes you know we talk about so many like political issues on this podcast that sometimes it's nice to watch a movie like, uh, do the right thing. That's just, just for fun, you know, sort of (laughs) just, just escapism, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just a, a a light night. Right. Just like a, I mean, almost a rom-com in a way. (laughs) Classic boy meets girl. Uh, (laughs)
1: Um, but before we get into do the right thing just to mention something that happened in the news that is uh relevant to our interests in armageddon and that is the norilsk diesel oil spill I, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but this was a industrial diesel oil spill diesel fuel spill in siberia um that was it had a a cause that is kind of novel but will will come to be the norm i think and it was an enormous diesel fuel tank that was uh located or diesel oil tank that was located in siberia and it was built upon the permafrost there and the permafrost melts and because of that the ground becomes unsteady and that leads to this oil spill so it's this Crazy. It's the,
0: the circle of death. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, the it's, fossil fossil fuel creates the conditions that warm the planet and destroy the uh, the mechanism by which we yeah the, the, transport the and, feedback and loop, get fossils.
1: You know, feedback loop, uh, oroboros, uh, <laughs> self suck of death that we're <laughs> that we're all caught in. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll see how this turns out. It, it was sort of. Disheartening uh, for many reasons, but one that I one specific one is on the Wikipedia page for it, uh, because you know with everything going on in the United States right now, this isn't really widely reported currently. So the way I found out is it was a news item on the front page of Wikipedia, and the last line of the introduction of the article is the accident has been described as the second largest oil spill in modern Russian history. <laughs> it's like oh, cool.
0: Jeez. At least Apparently, time. Putin has de- declared a state of emergency for that that uh, region.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's a – In this this is by no means a silver lining, but I don't think it's necessarily a heavily populated area. I don't mm. know that for, for certain, but I, I don't think it's – I think it was more like a, an industrial operation. Gotcha. But, you know, that doesn't make it, it any better. It'll find its
0: way into – into the people's drinking water, I'm sure.
1: Oh, for sure. And, you know, it's already probably decimated the wildlife in that area for, you know, decades, if not centuries. So, yeah. pretty cool. We just keep making the same fuck ups over and over again, and no one learns anything, and we just do it again. Yeah.
0: And that's the show. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk about Spike Lee's yeah. uh, uh, 1989 Do the Right Thing uh, starring. Most prominently, John Tuturo, Danny Aiello, and Spike Lee, and Samuel L. Jackson, and whatever that guy's name who's in uh, Ferris Bueller, who like steals the car, takes it for a joyride. Um, uh, Rosie Perez, Spike Lee's sister. Um, oh, that was I see. I
1: didn't even know that was his sister. That makes a lot of sense.
0: I watched like half of a really good um, making of documentary on YouTube. It's like worth watching.
1: Yeah, I do. Better with, than I, I typical say it's weird that of you like of. It was strange that you began listing the cast with two of the white actors. <laughs> that was a little unusual. <laughs> um, Gian- Giancarlo Esposito. Just, I don't think you mentioned him, which it is no, no,
0: he's I, I put it together after the fact that uh, that is the guy who plays the detective in the usual suspects.
1: Yeah, I, I know him more from uh, Breaking Bad.
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize that was him. Jeez. Yeah, right. I'm he, like, yeah, it's it, one of his
1: earlier roles, I think. Uh, and you know, obviously, he's he's a much younger man. So he, and because of you know his his uh, outfit and his his haircut and everything, he's not as recognizable as the like stately older man that he is today.
0: Yeah, that's just like sort of blowing my mind. He's uh, really transforms mm-hmm. into pure evil. Yeah, and then uh
1: Aussie uh, Davis and uh, Ruby forget why can't I remember anyone's name Ruby D um as uh the mayor and mother's sister and they were married in real life so that's a nice little you know a hmm. little little touch there that makes it nicer that they are kind of drawn to each other
0: I'd like to also mention and uh have it be pointed out uh, whatever the actor's name who is who plays the white police officer mm-hmm uh, do do you have the list of yeah, that guy? I'm, I'm looking he's he's me. like the. I mean, have you you've seen Rookie of the Year right?
1: Not for a long time, but yeah, I've seen it.
0: He's like the bad guy, just like the muscle bad guy who keeps hitting. Yeah. Uh, like you think he's going to hit a home run off of the Rookie of the Year, the Henry Rowan Gardner. Uh, but that guy. Does a good job of making you hate him uh, very deeply.
1: Uh, I think I found it. And in, in do
0: the right thing, not uh, not rookie of the year.
1: Well, yeah, rookie of the year too. Why not?
0: Well, both, both.
1: I on both sides. I for some reason cannot. I, I'm seeing two. It's Miguel Sandoval and Rick Ayello.
0: Yeah, that's Danny's son. Playing the one cop, so it's the other guy. Yeah.
1: Whatever, doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) None of this matters. Uh, So, yeah. So, uh, do the right thing. This is a movie I had not seen for for quite a few years. I uh, originally, you know, growing up in predominantly white Eastern Kentucky, you can imagine, do the right thing wasn't something that like. A bunch of people it was banned. <laughs> yeah, it was. It never came across the county line, uh, but <laughs> I watched it in undergrad. I took a intro to film course, and this was one of the films that we watched. So that was the first time that I had,
0: had seen it. And that's that's how I saw it too in an undergrad film class.
1: Yeah, which is you know that says a lot of not very positive things about our upbringings, but that, you know it's just the way the way shit goes sometimes. Um, yeah, that we didn't have our parents sitting us down and explaining uh, the inherent violence and in, in police in American policing to us. Um, uh, we all
0: Come on. We all had the talk with our parents.
1: <laughs> after no. we
0: went to the all white church every Sunday and uh, drove home to our suburban house. And you didn't go out to Cracker Barrel right after we went to
1: Cracker Barrel and discussed Crackers the appropriate name a more appropriate name never existed um so you know I watched it in that class and I remember at the time I I enjoyed it and you know found it to be a powerful film but at the same time I didn't really like or I guess maybe didn't appreciate the acting and the dialogue for a lot of the movie and I think that kind of gets to something you were saying before we started recording that it's it's almost written as a drama, almost like a stage play sort of in places, not all of it, of course, because it's yeah. still Spike Lee doing a lot of really kind of film savvy things as the director. Um, but this time around, I, I kind of was going, it was having those memories and was like, oh, well, you know, I remember I didn't love the acting, but this time it was just completely different and I really appreciated it a lot more. Um. And I, I'm not really sure why that is, but maybe I'm just getting smarter <laughs> well
0: something. i i'm I'm glad to hear you say that because Jensen and I watched it and just loved it like like you said i I saw this maybe ten oh over ten years ago, and it just sort of had a mediocre oh, it was it was okay reaction, and Gennsen and I loved it, could stop talking about it when we watched it the other night and then i texted you something about it and you were like yeah uh i remember the writing you know wasn't wasn't my favorite at the time and so i just didn't say anything uh, just to not to you know color your 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 view on it um uh, but i freaking loved it the the writing in particular like it doesn't like all the characters feel fully Themselves, like it's not redundant. It's like you, you can't tell. It's like one guy with with some sort of axe to grind writing every character. They all bring a very something very distinct to each character, while at the same time, you know, being part of this sort of unified vision. Uh, but the the, the the play aspect of it, or the the dramatic sort of theater like aspect of it, I think is. It's it's related to the characters' names. It's a similar thing going on. So you have like Mookie, which is kind of like a uh maybe the most the name most recognizable as like a person's name. But you have like mother's sister and buggin' out. Uh, I guess Sal is also just sort of regular. But the the names are kind of uh uh distancing in a way you 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 sort of have people as you know representing a certain type of person so bugging out is just like you know bugging out the whole time he's just like freaking out and he's upset the whole movie um but i what i'm saying is that there is this conscious intention in the movie for you to not uh, for this to not feel like a documentary while there are some elements of sort of gritty, you know, New York realism, there's also things that seem intentionally artificial um, and and like a play, so that we cannot get lost in the realism, uh, nor can we particularize the themes, the content of the story, and are forced to grapple with the ideas, the the basic sort of you know, Bertel Brecht kind of concept, um, which I, which I really appreciate. And we will have reason to talk about in detail next week, but I won't spoil that. Yeah.
1: And one of the the kind of things that goes along with the, the, the way that this film is stylized is that, uh, Spike Lee creates, there are a lot of individual characters that are very kind of iconic and stand out like Radio Raheem and you know, Mookie himself is pretty sort of, you know, is a very spikely character, um, based on my relatively limited knowledge. I've seen a handful of his films. Um, mm-hmm. but he also does this thing where he creates these, uh, amalgam characters, is what I'm choosing to call them. And specifically, Amalgam in the middle, Amalgam X. <laughs> I like how you shifted halfway through that. <laughs>
0: Um, I shifted my reference from your,
1: amalgam in the middle, amalgam X in the middle. You could okay. just see your like synapses firing of like, oh, amalgam, um, <laughs> amalgam, amalgam. <laughs> but there's uh, specifically, I'm thinking of um the uh oh, man. I forgot his name as we were talking about amalgam. Martin Lawrence. You have the the group of like four young people with Martin Lawrence being one of them, and there's a couple other guys and a girl. Um, kind of didn't recognize as much and they are just sort of the kids from the neighborhood or like the teenagers who mm-hmm. whatever from the neighborhood that are just sort of they're not the, the things that they're doing aren't necessarily well I don't want to say they're not not vital but they're not quite as vital right is just sort of to show you the life of young people within this neighborhood and so you know they crack open the fire hydrant and spray it at the guy and all that sort of stuff um, mm-hmm. and at the end it's sort of their uh, showing up at the, the pizzeria and wanting to get pizza after they've closed. That sort of sets everything off. Um, or doesn't, I mean, that's not what sets it off, but that's what kind of like sets it up to be set off. Um, so I, I, that, that was kind of interesting. It's almost like a like a chorus or something of these, these young people that are just around and their conversations are all just sort of, except for when the one of them, Uh, gets in the mayor's face and is yelling at him, Uh, but even then, it's a very sort of like their lines are basically coming from a a kind of four-headed character, Mm -hmm. and that's not you know incredibly important, but it's just something I noticed that I thought was was an interesting kind of move uh, that that filled out the the kind of life of this street, but at the same time, it, it didn't give us four kind of extremely unique standout characters It gave us like a group that served kind of as one character
0: well and you see you see maybe the the whole community is sort of that way a sort of one character because yeah. there's a real emphasis on the community of, of the block mm-hmm. um, and and you really only see this when you know at the end when they not all i guess not all of them if you count sal and uh, his sons, but most of them sort of unite and destroy this place. Um, but, but like I said, there's a real emphasis on community, almost a uh, uh, sort of borderline naive emphasis on community. Um, one thing I couldn't help but think watching this movie. Uh, especially the ending is that it seems like, I mean, obviously we're talking about this in the context of, of the protests, you know, international protests going on right now. Um, the reality now is much worse than what's depicted in the fiction of do the right thing. So in do the right thing, you have kind of interpersonal, racism between the between Sal and the the group you're talking about uh, and and Radio Rahim and then the police intervene to break up this fight and kill murder Radio Rahim which is terrible you know and and is based on I heard Spike Lee say the murder of Michael Stewart in 1983 mm-hmm. by a police officer with a chokehold. Uh, but now there's there's no middleman. It's not like people are fighting. The police step in to to you know break it up and then kill them. The police seemingly seek these people out and kill them over cigarettes and $20 bills. Yeah. Uh, w- uh, you see what I'm saying? It's like as, as terrible as the violence is that's depicted in Do the Right Thing, the reality in 2020 is is much, much worse.
1: Yeah. Like uh, if this film's made today, then Radio Raheem die, will die for basically – nothing like you said $20 some. yeah Lucy it's like he, he
0: steps out on the street with his radio and takes a bullet that yeah. uh, the end credits roll
1: yeah and the, another the the incident that you were talking about was was one of the uh, kind of inspirations kind of dark inspirations for the film another one was uh, this shooting of, of Eleanor bumpus or sorry bumpers mm-hmm. Eleanor bumpers um, who is mentioned in the film after they they put Raheem in the back of the car and they drive him away, the cops, and they say, oh, this is just like, you know, this one. And and one of the ones they mentioned is Eleanor uh, Bumpers. And she was a 66-year-old woman who uh, was being served an eviction notice, I believe, and the cops bust into her house. Uh, They claimed that she had a knife she was threatening with, and they shot a 66-year-old woman twice with a 12-gauge shotgun in her own apartment. So it's one of the things like the more things change, the more they stay the same like this is the same level of police violence that we've been seeing in this country since its founding, especially against you know minorities, especially the African American community so it's
0: did you I'm sure you've seen the video of the police pushing down the seventy something year old man and he's yeah. bleeding from the head,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so I mean. I I made the mistake or maybe not a mistake of uh, going down the YouTube hole of just sort of racist encounters and just the sheer volume. I mean, just, you can sort of pick, you can just sort of pick what sort of racist video you'd like to see. And I don't, I don't really have anything to say about that other than, you know, you always hear people talk about uh, reality is, you know, wilder than fiction. And I think this is a, a, a case where that is very true. Uh, I, I think Do the Right Thing is canonical. And, and there's a reason they show it in, you know, college film classes. And I think it will remain canonical for a long, long time, uh, hopefully as a relic but uh, more likely as as a parable a relevant parable
1: yeah and going back to the video you mentioned of the the man in buffalo who was shoved what was so shocking about that video at that time was not just that this is an elderly man or just that the cops kind of callously push him to sort of assert their authority because that's all they're ever concerned about but it's that after they push him and he's laying on the ground bleeding out of his fucking head, the cops have, or at least a couple of them, especially the one that shoves him have a, a brief moment of empathy and you can see them like kind of panic and want to help him. But then the other one, you know, the other cops around them are sort of urging them on and then they sort of snap to and they keep marching. Yeah. And that's like that, that kind of moment of empathy is, which is, that's the human interact, the human reaction to what's happened. And then they have this inhuman reaction of, you know, their indoctrination kicks in and then they're back at what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just like it, it, the, the lack of empathy is something that's like always just amazing in these situations. But watching Do the Right Thing, what's so amazing about this film is that Spike Lee does such... goes. To such great lengths to make you empathize with pretty much every character, um, even the you know white racist characters that y- you sort of feel a connection to them, and so when this happened, this you know terrible thing happens at the end, you feel terrible for Radio Raheem and for the black community within you know in this this block, but you also you kind of feel for Sal like he was he in his mind trying to do the right thing and now he's kind of left without his restaurant which is you know that's that's not equal to human life property is not equal to human life i know that's a controversial opinion in america right now Uh, but you you do kind of have this twinge of like you feel bad for sal a little bit um and just to to kind of finish up this point i'm making um there's this piece it's kind of a you know how reviewers will sometimes go back and write like a updated review of a film many years after so this is uh the late great roger ebert writing about the movie in 2001 and this is the how he closes this this review and i just think it's a good thing to, to mention and it's part part of what he's responding to here is when people we're speculating that the film would lead to actual racial violence in, you know, after it's screened. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, none of these people is perfect, but Lee makes it possible for us to understand their feelings. His empathy is crucial to the film because if you can't try to understand how the other person feels, you're a captive inside the box of yourself. Thoughtless people have accused Lee over the years of being an angry filmmaker. He has much to be angry about, but I don't find it in his work the wonder of do the right thing is that he is so fair. Those who found this film an incitement to violence are saying much about themselves and nothing useful about the film or about the movie. It's predominant emotion is sadness. And then he mentions, you know, there's the, the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X quotes at the end.
0: But I just found that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I very much agree with that. I, I, I found, I think Spike Lee is, uh, um, you know, is anything but militant. He is, Spike Lee is contemplative. Um, this is a this is a this movie is a meditation on um, on which road to take towards liberation. <laughs> you know, it is not a call to arms.
1: Yeah, even if you have, uh, I mean, it's set up so early in the film. One of the first characters we meet is Smiley. And he has the the photograph of King and, and Malcolm X shaking hands and he, he does this whole thing of like Malcolm X and he draws the crown over Martin Luther King and at the at the end you see him hanging the picture on the, the wall inside of Sal's restaurant. Um, so it, it's, and, he's and, really and let's about
0: it. let's not let's also not forget that Spike Lee is like a it is much more than just it, it seems like people always want to characterize. Uh, a black artist as a black artist you know what i'm saying like this is this is a an extremely well-made film that is very film literate and like the the whole love hate knuckle thing on radio raheem is a is a reference to charles lawton's night of the hunter where robert mitchum from like the 40s or 50s you know, has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles, which is, uh, also alluded to in, uh, punch drunk love. I think he has that tattooed on his knuckles. Uh, anyway, it's, a, a filmmaker like that who is, who is piecing together and, and writing such a, uh, such a film literate, film is is not a reactionary you know what i'm saying this is not a a neil young protest song uh, where he's just you know watching the news and then getting his crew together to go make some sort of propaganda this is an extremely thoughtful well-written drama yeah
1: yeah and i would agree with that uh it's like you said it's it's he's nothing if not kind of contemplative and and he is he gets pigeonholed in the minds of a lot of people i think as you know the the black filmmaker but you know if anything he's a very kind of deeply american filmmaker he's writing about things that are just sort of unique to this country a lot in a lot of his films not maybe not all of them but
0: he have you seen have you seen 25th hour
1: no that's one of his that i've never seen
0: it's a really cool really cool movie and is and something Edward? you don't see a lot is a is a black filmmaker making a film with a white cast. That's Ed, uh, Ed
1: Norton, right?
0: Yeah, Edward Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and uh, Barry Pepper when he still had some <laughs> when he still some had clout. the sauce. Yeah, I think he's a Scientologist. Uh but yeah, he was uh, in Battlefield Earth. He
1: was the star of Battlefield Earth.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that I mean it's been years since I've seen that, so I don't want to endorse it too heavily, but I remember I remember really – that was one of the uh, – that might have been the first Spike Lee movie I, I ever saw. And I was very impressed. It was the first movie to show Ground Zero. It was I think it was maybe the first movie that was set in New York to be released after 9-11. And there's this very ominous scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper are standing next to this window in an apartment – and the camera just sort of rises, is like sort of slow, you know, moving towards them slowly and then kind of rises above them and p- gives us their angle down and out of the window onto ground zero. And it's at night and there's just like, um, like dump trucks and bulldozers and things. It's, it's a very creepy scene. Um, but my point is, he is, uh, you know, he's black and he makes, uh, movies mostly, especially his early stuff with almost entirely black casts and black crews. Um, but that does not mean that he is, you know, some sort of marginalized, peripheral, uh, niche artist. Like he is a, a an extremely thoughtful filmmaker. And writer uh, that can really really can do anything he wants. I saw I watched Inside Man again, which is just kind of this uh, you know uh, bank robbery, Clive Owen, Denzel Washington thing, big budget, and it's it's very good. Um, so he's just a, an extremely talented artist.
1: Yeah, and something that people maybe don't think of when they think of Spike Lee is that. He's an incredibly good, in, in my opinion, documentary maker.
0: Um, when the levees yeah. broke or so, whatever that one's called. That's a fucking
1: nightmare. So, yeah, he did uh, Four Little Girls, which was about the, the uh, church bombings in Birmingham, just, just up the road. Uh, and then he did When the Levee's Broken, uh, If God is Willing in a Creek Don't Rise. And what is fascinating about those is he's sort of the only person that has gone to such great lengths to document what a historic failure of policy, uh, the aftermath of hurricane Katrina
0: was in this country. Uh, well, but- I'm, oh, we were texting the other day and I'm getting a serious post Katrina vibe from this sort of militia stuff starting to pop up in, in response to protests.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, Katrina and the chaos of that, which is uh, Katrina is just sort of this like, People talk about 9-11 constantly. It led us to war and all these terrible things. But Katrina was sort of the moment that was like, we are probably living in a failing empire where we watch a a major American city basically fall to pieces before our eyes. And within that, there are, you know, countless number of people that have gone missing or shown up dead and no one's sure what's happened. No one's sure who killed them. Um, Same thing where we had very likely military contractors, basically mercenaries on american soil like killing american citizens um yeah and i mean we've probably talked about zaytoon before but yeah if you're curious about that read zaytoon and you'll get a pretty good glimpse you'll of go from was.
0: curious to furious in no time
1: <laughs> the the fast and the curious uh <laughs> but but yeah it's it's uh those documentaries are, are very kind of well done so yeah just going back to that, this idea of Spike Lee's more than just that guy that makes the black for films. He's that guy that is very extremely competent and and good at pretty much every aspect of film because like you said, he's so he, he understands film very deeply. And he has a very deep love for film it seems. I mean, he he's taught it for a long
0: time at like NYU and different places. That's that's another aspect of do the right thing that I think makes it transcend some sort of reactionary realm is that it's not unfun. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it is like funny and like vibrant. The the dialogue is, is vibrant and, um, it's just, it's, it's not, uh, some sort of, um, sober, you know, kind of, uh, lecture, you know, at all.
1: Yeah. And that was, uh, I watched it with Lava and and she had never seen it. And she kinda of drove home what I was already kinda of thinking when the you know, everything all hell breaks loose toward the end and well not at the end, and that's sort of another brilliant thing, is it's not like the film just ends after after the uh the kind of uh violence. But she as everything's happening and people are fighting, she just kinda of goes Man, this film took a really hard turn. <laughs> and, like, it, and that's, that's kind of the brilliance of it because up until then there's been some animosity and some sort of tensions, but it, it's all been, like you said, it's been kind of a fun movie. Like the tensions are usually just kind of not resolved, but people just kind of are willing to walk away
0: from them and all these things. And then it's, yeah, it's almost like a, it's almost like a joke, like especially the sequence where the camera just keeps cutting to different characters, you know, spewing these racial slurs and zooming in fast. Mm-hmm. It's like this kinetic sort of fun moment, but, but has all these just like terrible slurs in it, but he's, you can see Spike Lee sort of playing with it in a weird way.
1: Yeah. Of like showing that these kinds of, uh, these kinds of underlying racial animosities are present, but the way in which he's showing them to you, because it's like you said, it's so frenetic and all that. It, you can easily sort of let it slide of like, Oh, well, that was kind of a weird little interstitial thing. Uh, it, you know, I'm sure that doesn't foreshadow anything. Um, right. And, and then, the well,
0: there's almost, uh, there's original. almost a, uh, I this watching it. It's like, a what in, in literature you'd call free indirect discourse where I guess, you know, Mookie's kind of the central character. He's sort of our tour guide of this setting. But it, the, those little monologues, you know, we sort of slip into someone's mind, um, and, and then we get this sort of intimate conversation between Sal and his sons um, to where it kind of slips in between first and third person and, and then different first persons, you know, uh, which is another, uh, in, in some ways, distancing non non-realistic uh tactic uh that i thought was worth noting
1: yeah absolutely um sorry just looking at something got distracted a little bit but yeah so that 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 kind of hard turn that it takes is i think indicative of when these kinds of things happen in real life, like, because of the situation when George Floyd was murdered, that we're already living within this kind of corona hellscape of a of a year, um, it was just sort of heaping misery upon misery. But if you think of like the Trayvon Martin killing and these other, you know, far too many to 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 count, all those people should be you know counted and remembered um, that when those happen, they are such a sort of jarring jolt of, of reminding you of, you know, this is a racist state contraption that you're dealing with. Right. This is something that's incredibly violent and racist and takes people's lives unfairly. And,
0: and I, my YouTube adventures, uh, kind of highlight the fact that what we see on the news and when these, when these things happen and, these protests begin. These are just the most extreme examples, the most televisable examples. There's just countless videos of, you know, uh, one I watched was this white woman not letting a black man into his apartment building because she lived there and she had never seen him before. And she just assumed that, you know, he didn't live there. Um, and it's just cringe where there's one where the, I guess, I think it's, they says it the Houston Astros owner's wife. Um, and she's got her little dog and she stops this like interracial couple, like wants them to stop taking picture, pictures or something. It's always a, it's always a white woman and her dog for some reason in these videos. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, which we just saw another example of very recently. Um, uh, but what I'm saying is, the the police killings are just extreme the most extreme examples of you know what is uh, uh the typical experience uh, of racism is is everyday little little things um, or seemingly little things that don't necessarily involve murder but it's it's sort of like the like you said there in do the right thing, there's all these little sort of tensions in the movie. And then of course it explodes at the end, but the little tensions themselves are not okay. You can see, I mean, there's like serious, uh, tension between bugging out and Sal. And one thing I wanted to say about Sal is in watching the making of documentary, someone explains that the actor, Danny, Iello I can never say his name, um, was sort of petitioning Spike Lee to, like, conv- he, was, he was trying to convince Spike Lee that his character, Sal, was was not a racist. And Spike Lee was saying, like, no, like, I've sort of written him this way because, yeah, he he's a racist. And so they were kind of arguing, lightly arguing, over whether or not Sal was actually a racist and I think you know you were mentioning before that you kind of feel sympathy for him um, I think you can sort of feel that tension between the actor and the director of like how are we actually supposed to feel about Sal and and I think that gets to the film's central ambiguity of like what is the right thing how and the epistemology of it how do we know what is the right thing um, a lot of a lot of moving parts, a lot of ambiguity, not a whole lot of uh, uh, like didactic point-making going on.
1: Yeah, and I was reading a thing where someone was... Uh, I'm sure he's been asked this a million times, that somebody was asking Spike Lee, did Mookie do the right thing at the end? And his response was, no person of color has ever asked me that.
0: Um, I, I saw something similar where he said he said white people ask him all the time, why did Mookie throw the trash can? And he said, no black person has ever asked him why Mookie threw the trash can. Uh, And he also said that um, some people think, and there's like a a quick little scene that, that they cite as their um, textual evidence. Some people think, that Mookie throws the trash can to protect Sal and his sons to sort of direct the attention away from them and onto their store because it looks like they're being threatened and are about to get a beat down. uh, And then that's when he goes and throws the trash can. But Spike Lee came out and said, that is not at all what I was intending That is that never crossed my mind.
1: Yeah, that's and you know that's that's a reading that is like I I kind of get it, but at the same time, what does Mookie owe them other than they pay him every week, right? Like they don't. I mean, Sal's I guess relatively nice, but at the same time, Sal can be kind of patronizing, or not kind of can be just outright patronizing. Like the mayor shows up and he you know, Oh, you can sweep my sidewalk and I'll pay you because I'm a good guy not realizing that's a little bit fucked up that he's doing it. But right. I guess the, the mayor's willing because he, he needs the money. Um, but yeah, Mookie, just to think that Mookie would owe something to this family, you know, it's,
0: well, it's, and, yeah. And they, the people saying this were saying that, uh, well, you see the scene where Sal's, you know, tells Mookie he's like his own son. You know, but I think if you pay close attention to that scene, you see that this is kind of the overflow of Sal's good mood when he realizes what a good financial day they had. Um, and, and, and you, you're led to believe that, oh, if maybe, if they hadn't made that much money that day, maybe he wouldn't have said that. Um, so you can't, maybe you can't really believe what Sal says. He's just in a particularly good mood because he just made a wad of cash mostly on, uh, you know, Mookie's labor.
1: Yeah. And, and he says, you know, you're like a son, but he's really not because I mean, he, he's always talking to Pino and Vito, like I'm going to, you know, this will be yours someday. I'll change the name to Sal and sons, like all this sort of stuff. And, you know, Pino has seemingly endless rope for doing, being angry and using racial slurs and, you know, almost beating up Smiley and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. of just being hateful basically um whereas mookie you know sal does let him get away with a lot of things of like goes on a delivery and doesn't come back for a long time that sort of stuff but at the same time like fuck that who cares
0: yeah um a powerful moment is once the uh, once the building has the pizzeria has been set on fire you see sal and his son standing off to the side. And Pino, John Tatura, you know, it's like a close-up and he just says the, the N-word very emphatically. Um, and you see that, you, you see this sort of cyclical, uh, this, this cycle of violence and racism um, and how it gets perpetuated. Um, a, a system Set up to perpetuate violence and, and violence that perpetuates racism. Um, and, and so when Pino says that, you just say, Oh, this is the justifications that racists are using without any access to the, the sort of underlying structure uh, that I'm talking about, the, the system producing all of these all of these elements um, yeah yeah
1: and and like you said that you just see it that kind of feedback loop of of racial animosity racial violence um, and that's why I really like that that uh, sentence that Ebert wrote that its predominant emotion is sadness right because you have this feeling of you know, no one got what they wanted out of out of that interaction. Like everyone comes out worse for wear. Um, you know, Radio Rahim's dead, so he, you know, obviously gets the the worst outcome of, of everyone involved. But like everyone else in the neighborhood has to deal with his his loss and having been present as he's being you know, murdered by the police and just just a list of things. And then you see the next day of kind of life not going back to normal but being like sort of normal even though there's this like you have the same kind of specter and it's still hot outside right that's why it's so great at the end when you have uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, Mr. Senior Love Daddy uh, <laughs> you know starts he's like wake up you know today's forecast is hot like that, that kind of same kind of Groundhog Day almost kind of
0: uh, right. repetition and of and, and you see thing. that the heat Which is a big part of the movie is a is a a metaphor for the pre-existing sort of racial tensions that are are permeating your everyday life. Uh, A particularly clever way that that is communicated, I think, is when you see the newspapers and like the front page of all the newspapers is about the heat. It's like the New York Times is not reporting on the weather on the front page, at least in 1989, it wasn't, you know, um, and so that's a really smart, efficient way, I think to, to show how, uh, to show what the heat sort of, what role it plays in, in the kind of, uh, symbolic world of the movie. Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, and that's again, one of those kind of savvy moves of, you know, in, in real life, these newspapers would have, Stories of police violence and other
0: things, right, right, um, and that, but that's another way that uh, Spike Lee um, universalizes the story to where you will be able to watch this movie for a hundred years, um, and and have it be meaningful as opposed to it being some sort of political reaction to a to you know to one thing. Yeah. Um,
1: for sure. Just trying to think of other things that we haven't touched on yet.
0: Here's something. Here's something Jensi noticed. The opening sequence where Rosie Perez is just uh, dancing mm-hmm. looks a lot like the opening credits to the Cosby show.
1: <laughs> yeah. the, the – the, I I didn't think about that, but now that you mention it, I can definitely see some connection because, you know, there's like the family dancing and then this is right.
0: And we were, we were sort of speculating that, that if that's conscious and intentional, it's like a, no, here's a story about what it's like to be black in the, in the late eighties.
1: Yeah. And the, her dancing, which is not. What's so great about it is that it's, it's kind of bad dancing, but it's very forceful. Um, it's
0: it's it's a very honest, you know. She's yeah. just like
1: getting after it. Yeah, and just like it, her face the whole time was just like you can see the kind of like effort and strain of, of that she's putting into the motions.
0: Um, mm-hmm. And this is her first movie. Can you imagine? I I'd just like to imagine this was the first scene that she filmed. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be an actor. What do I do? And he's just like, just dance like a wild person. There's no, she have to be thinking like, this isn't real. <laughs>
1: this, he's going to ask me to take my clothes off. <laughs> yes. And then she is this. I'm not super familiar with the uh, the oeuvre of of Rosie Perez. Uh, this is is this her kind of most serious role? I know she's in White Man Can't Jump, and her role in that is excellent, but.
0: I know she. I, I'm now, I don't know all of her career, but I know she's in a really cool movie with Jeff Bridges called Fearless, that was directed by Peter Weir. Um, she's also she in, Night in on, Night on uh, Pineapple Express. Uh,
1: she was in Night on Earth, Jim Jarmusch movie. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That, that's not super important. I was just kind of thinking of Rosie Perez stuff um yeah that the dance scene that is such an iconic opening it goes on for like the entire length of the song and fight the power uh, but public enemies is kind of the have kind of a leitmotif specifically mm-hmm. for uh radio Raheem. it's the only song he plays and you know uh, i think bugging out at one point is like would you ever play anything else and he's like it's the only thing i like <laughs> um which is which is interesting but I just love that song specifically the the lines about Elvis uh when you know Chuck D's talking about how you know Elvis never meant shit to me and then Flavor Flav throws in motherfuck him and John Wayne <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that sort of like being iconoclastic for these these you know white figures that have been entrenched in American pop culture, you know, history. And just being like, fuck them. They don't mean anything to me. Like mm-hmm. they literally like they have all this influence, uh, quote you know, quote unquote influence, but for a large majority of the black community, they are not vital. And then you get a, a nice contrast to that later on when uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character is, is listing over the radio this kind of long, long list of these black artists. That just kind of goes on for a minute or two, um, yeah. and you get this sort of like I don't know. It's just, it, and that's also kind of in contrast to the to Sal's Wall of Fame that he has, mm-hmm. um, where you, he only has the Italian American, or I think he calls them American Italians, which is an interesting inversion.
0: American Italian, yeah. Uh, speaking of John Wayne, I was listening to a James Baldwin speech. I believe it was a speech uh, he gave in the debate against uh, William Buckley Mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the sixties at some point. And part of his speech, he mentions uh, watching sort of cowboy and Indian movies when you're young in America. And, and, then you grow up, he said, as a, as a black man, and realize that you are the Indian um, and how formative that experience is or reformative. Uh, anyway, John Wayne just made me think of that.
1: Yeah, that's definitely, that that, that comes from the Buckley debate, and he also writes about that um, in his, his essays that he has about going to the movies as a child. He wrote a lot about movies, interestingly enough. Um, but yeah, that, that you know, I can't imagine having that that kind of realization of like, oh, I, I'm the one being gunned down by the, the brave cowboy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, here's a totally useless thing I just saw. Uh, Rosie Perez is in Jim Jarmusch's uh, most recent film, The Dead Don't Die, from 2019, oh, the zombie and her movie. Cha- yeah, the zombie movie, and her character's name is Posey Juarez hmm. instead of Rosie Perez. Yeah, no, I get it. Because they uh, what they did was they switched the letters.
1: Amalgam X. <laughs> Trump's a billionaire. Trump's a fucking billionaire. Um, shit. Just trying to think, of like, what else to to touch on. Um, so I, I guess uh, we can talk a little bit about the uh, the Malcolm Martin debate that goes on in the film because I mentioned before it's it's so prominent they put it kind of front and center, um, and so you have characters that are kind of. I won't say that they have direct stand-ins, but they you have characters that are kind of more lean more in one way or the other, and then characters that are sort of easily pers- persuaded. So you have like DeMaire who's kind of a kind of more of like a Martin Luther King sort of character. Maybe he's he's kind of nonviolent. He's just sort of in the community. He he saves the young boy from getting hit by a car. He's just kind of around. But at the same time, he's also, you know, a drunk and sort of tells a story about how he couldn't provide for his family and all these kinds of things. He's kind of beat down. And, you know, he tells uh, Mother Sister at one point that, you know, uh, the mayor doesn't bother anybody. Nobody bothers him. He just goes about his business, that kind of thing. So he's sort of trying not to directly intervene in things, but at the same time kind of being sort of nonviolent. And then you have uh, Buggin' out who is just like hyped and ready to go at the drop right. of a hat? Like it doesn't take anything to to get him upset. Like the first introduction to him is he's buying the slice of pizza, and uh, he was like, "How much?" And he and Sal's like, "You come in here three times a day, like you know how much it is." And he's like, "We'll oh, put some extra cheese," which is a running thing. You know, extra cheese is two dollars. Um, and then, you know, he gets pissed off about the pictures. But then, toward the end, he goes and he recruits... He's trying to recruit different people to, like, boycott Sal's. And he finds Radio Raheem, who had the 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 conflict with Sal earlier in the day, and kind of convinces him to join in. They're like, yeah, fuck Sal. And then Smiley, too, I guess, shows up. Um, so you get this these clashing ideologies popping up and, and being sort of represented, kind of, in these different characters um and again because because spike lee's so fair he doesn't elevate one over the other he just shows you kind of here's the outcome of taking this route and here is the outcome of considering this other route and it sort of ends up that it kind of doesn't matter because they explode anyway
0: yeah um And you you said something about Sal's wall that made me think that the way Bugging Out is talking about Sal's wall is sort of similar to the way people talk about representations of minorities in film. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, we just got, like, it's like Bugging Out just wants there to be some sort of visible representation on the wall. So it, it's interesting to think of Sal's Wall as like celebrity sort of American film culture. Like, oh, we've got to get more black people in movies. Uh, we've got to have more uh, Oscar nominations for for people of color. Uh, and it seems like Spike Lee. I mean, uh, I mean, Spike Lee is goes out of his way to, like I said, most of his movies are uh, feature mostly black people and are made by black people. So he's certainly doing his part in terms of, uh, having black people represented on screen and in the film industry, but in do the right thing, you hear, uh, Mookie's sister who I I believe is Spike Lee's actual sister. Mm -hmm. Um, respond to bugging out when he's talking about this you know this representation on Southwell uh by saying she, she doesn't dismiss what he's what he's saying but she says what i'm for is some sort of like positive community action um as if to say yes that that's that's an issue but the real essential issue is about like how communities are impacted at a at a local level, not just getting, you know, more celebrities uh, on the wall.
1: Yeah, and and that is kind of the debate that, that the the violence in the movie sort of hinges upon. It's that is bugging out being is he kind of taking this representation issue maybe a little bit over the top you could argue that but also it's not asking too much of sal to like put up you know a couple of pictures of prominent black americans um so it's but, like, the,
0: but the real but the real issue is why doesn't he yeah, like, like why, why does why he have already? to be told to do that
1: you know yeah like why why is it so important that they all be italian americans right like right. when does kind of well i don't know it's it's like ethnic pride right like when does ethnic pride cross over into ethnocentrism right Um, right so i don't know it, it it is that debate that you kind of get stuck in and i think that's the point that spike lee's trying to make is that there's not really the the right answer is that all these answers are wrong and the problem is that this system of thinking exists in the
0: first place right exactly that that we have to even talk about these questions because Let's say, let's say, bugging out rallies the neighborhood, right? And, and everyone is demanding, they boycott Sal's and they say, you better put some pictures of famous black people on your wall. And he says, in order to maintain their business, he does. He puts, you know, a picture of, of, uh, you know, Michael Jordan or, or whoever they say in the movie. And, like what does that solve? because because they know he did it begrudgingly. Uh, they know it's only to maintain their business. So it, it's not getting at the at the heart of anything. It's not really impacting the quality of the community other than bugging out and maybe a few other people are not as irate when they are in that pizza shop.
1: Yeah. It, like it, no one would notice maybe except for bugging out.
0: <laughs> and, and I don't want the I don't want my interpretation there to be misconstrued as I'm saying it doesn't matter if, you know, there's representations of, you know, equal representation of black people in film. Obviously I think, I think it should be, um, I think Hollywood films should reflect uh, America, what America looks like, which of course is uh, people of all different colors. Um, But what I'm saying is that Spike Lee's using this symbol, I think is inviting us to really think about that conversation and, and ask ourselves, is it essential if it's not what, what is more essential? Why does this conversation exist in the first place? Is there something a little bit cynical about, you know, just thinking that if, if a, pers- a picture of a black person is on the wall, progress has been made?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, what ends up in that, that climactic scene where Sal smashes Radio Raheem's boombox, uh, it's just so i don't know like so many of those things kind of collapsing at once where you have it's all fueled by the wall of fame and then Radio rahim refusing to turn down his music and bugging out being very kind of militant about about trying to make this change and sal trying to or at least seeing himself as you know one of the good ones basically um and then it all explodes and sort of the the thing that sets it all off is sal you know using the n-word uh against radio raheem
0: um yeah because well because those the the four people like the four little crew with uh martin lawrence they're on sal's side originally and then sal drops the n-word and then all of a sudden they yeah. uh they quickly turn on.
1: yeah and and so it becomes then it it, it goes from being what is like it, not a completely innocuous kind of disagreement, but, you know, something that you can actually have kind of a, a, a dialogue about to something that is kind of irretrievable at that point, like it's
0: broken. Well, at that point. well, even then, though, I mean, it's a big fight that is that is going on. Mm-hmm. But even then the cops aren't there and it's only when the cops show up that the shit really hits the fan.
1: Yeah. And, you know, again, Spike Lee doing this kind of thing of of making it way more complicated than you might think. So you kind of have to ask questions of yourself where you have Radio Raheem on top of Sal, like literally choking him. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so someone of a, a more kind of, I don't know, racist kind of authoritarian leaning would be like, well, you know, he was going to kill Sal, so he had to be stopped. That kind mm-hmm. of like
0: super predator kind of discourse that you see, um, but but there's there's accountability built into the community. Like yes. like if we're not talking about the cops, there's account there's accountability uh, built into the relationship between uh, a store owner and a community of customers. Yes. Um. So, so that's its own thing, and and the real Evil only shows up when the cops show up because they have fucking immunity to yes. this. There, There's no consequence for their abuse of power. Whereas, uh, you know, if uh, let's just say none of this violence happened and Sal had dropped the N-word and everyone had just left, like they're not coming back. And so sal is held accountable in in a way um as much as he can be held accountable and he's lose he loses business he's hurt but the cops show up kill radio rahim and then just leave
1: yeah and take him take his body which is that to me that was like i i guess i had forgotten that or like it didn't come to mind so seeing that was just especially kind of jarring but you know the i don't know if that's any better than now the police will murder someone and just leave them on the street so you know there's no right answer
0: um but, yeah, yeah I, it's just, I mean it. i can't imagine a more cynical conversation that is i mean reflective of reality is how should the cops treat the body after they've murdered yeah, someone yeah so,
1: and like you say, like if the, the cops show up, like some sort of, you know, dark deus ex machina, and, and it all quickly de- deteriorates even further, and someone ends up dead. Whereas before, maybe, you know, d- does someone end up dead if the cops don't show up? I, I, I you can't say for sure, but it's that's, less likely.
0: That's interesting. You said deus ex machina, it made me think like the cops are like. You know, means God from machine. It's like they are the gods in the machine. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh,
1: pretty much. i I'm in. You know, they because when they show up, kind of one way or another, things sort of come to an end, right? I'm, I mean, I think a lot of people have probably been. Well, you know, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of people have probably been to a, a house party that's been broken up by the cops. And so the cops show up with their flashlights and stuff, and that's when you know, okay, it's time to leave, that kind of thing. Whereas in, in these more nefarious circumstances, the cops show up and then murder an innocent civilian, and that's sort of the end of, of whatever was going on. Um, so they do Wh- serve- good?
0: What's the guy's name who hosts uh, Patriot Act on Netflix? Hassan Minhaj. Hassan Minhaj. Uh, he was taught. – I'm sure you watched his latest thing his like it's like 12 or 13 minute clip that's fucking gets you pumped up anyway uh, talking about the kind of structural systemic uh, issues within within police culture like how immunity happens or impunity happens um, strangely but not that strangely reminded me of how catholic priest abuse gets perpetuated and and in both instances you have these larger than life institutions to which we outsource some sort of power um and and they have these sort of self-enclosed systems of reprimand and i mean that's how that's really how real I mean for lack of a better word evil gets perpetuated is is these concentrations of power uh you know that are so so powerful that that they operate on on different legal systems you know Mm -hmm. um or they are the legal system in the case of the of police brutality. Um, but the it seems the real culprit here is, is the uh, whatever sort of social configuration we have that allows such concentrations of power um, because that is what allows for the configuring of these alternate, um, systems of recourse and reprimand which are jokes you know yeah. the priests priests don't get uh sent to jail they get transferred the same way cops don't get fired they get you know a slap on the wrist or something uh, but it's it's a strange sort of parallel and and they're both just sort of uh institutions run amok
1: Yeah. Just everybody's playing by their, their own rule book basically, except for as just like average citizens, our rule book is way shittier and there are way more rules and way more things we can't do unless we have a bunch of money and then you can kind of, you know, skip jail and go straight to $200.
0: Yeah. Um, As, uh, I recently watched that Jeffrey Epstein documentary. You see, you see, uh, at least in his case, how much money got him out of serious charges.
1: Yes, money and, and uh, connections, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty fucking gross in a lot of ways. Uh, and the, and something that uh, this kind of made me think of this is a uh, a big issue, and I, I'm by no means this is by no means an an original idea, but. Um, the, the concept of defunding the police and how people have, if you just hear that and you don't think about it or you don't hear it explained, your idea is like, oh, well, then who enforces the laws and who protects people, you know, you, who replaces the police, that sort of shit. But that doesn't mean completely abolishing outright the police. It means more of like drastically cutting back on one, their funding because it's ridiculous and it needs to be put in other places like education and infrastructure, stuff like that, and then two, uh, reducing the obscene list of responsibilities that police have, not to say that like not to make them sound knowable. It's not like they chose this shit. This has been thrust upon them by, you know, cutbacks from the government and shit like that. But replacing them with people like healthcare professionals, right? This is a big thing. Like Reagan during the Reagan administration, they shut down Healthcare facility or a mental health care facilities and that leads to those people being incarcerated and more like social workers to deal with these uh you know whatever you know domestic abuse or you know child involved situations stuff like that um that is such a just a basic thing that that kind of would take a lot of their their power away a lot of their broad sweeping power which is a big part of the problem and also cut their funding, so maybe they don't all have fucking Abrams tanks that they're rolling down Main Street in. No matter where you live, like you, if you doesn't matter what kind of rinky-dink podunk town you live in, the number one thing that is funded in your town is probably—well, I won't even say probably; is definitely the police department.
0: Yeah, it's it's more defunding is is a, a scaling back to a human level, yes. uh, uh, back from a, a sort of despotic level.
1: Yes, uh, definitely, and and taking them from occupying troops on American soil to being more of what they should be, which is a special case force that is there to do specific things, dealing with the breaking of the law.
0: Right. It's it's almost like it's, it's almost like that outsized funding is uh, for the police is a result of this general sort of submission to authority Um, I don't want to sound like too much of an anarchist here but and and I know like you know to some degree some sort of law enforcement is necessary because not every person can protect uh, her himself and there are people and always will be people who do shitty things who do terrible things but it also strikes me uh, as at the very least interesting that people's first uh, thought, you know, in sort of a conservative uh, mindset, is oh, what will we do if there's no police? It's, it's sort of like we were talking about earlier it's like it's sort of even cynical that we even have to have this conversation um it's or not cynical just kind of sad like oh if we don't have some sort of authoritarian rule everyone's just going to murder each other like why should that be the case Mm -hmm. um i I don't know and and i don't want that to sound too idealistic but there there has to be some sort of um personal integrity you know and, and morality i'd like to think that i don't uh, not murder people because i'm afraid i'll get caught you know
1: <laughs> yes. I,
0: I don't i don't murder people because i don't want to and because i think you know i think people have a right to life and i also would like to to live uh, and the police have have very little to do with it
1: yes absolutely sorry i I had a thought all queued up and then i got caught caught up in your your logic there and i forgot what i was gonna say um uh but uh, yeah it kind of gets back to that part of that that ebert section that passage that i read where he said if you're finding violence or you're fearing violence out of the film then that says way more about you than it does about what's actually on the screen um and that's the case with, with a lot of people now. It, it's been complicated even further because there is actual, like, violence on the streets being perpetrated by, you know, civilians. But it's against property, right? And even the thing, the big thing now that the cops are saying, are like, here's a, here's a collection of items that have been thrown at the police officers. As if their, you know, several thousand dollar riot gear isn't going to protect them from a golf ball or whatever the fuck has been thrown at them um and so i don't know just this idea that you have to meet this force which is a force kind of crying out for some fucking kind of justice that you have to meet them with immediate and like overwhelming violence it's just like that says so much about so many people within our society that just kind of to me discounts them as someone to be taken
0: seriously and on, on the destruction of property, I, I get the feeling that people are so brainwashed in a certain way to think of themselves as kind of extensions of capital or like, you know, workers are sort of themselves capital that when Capital is destroyed. They can't help but confuse that with a person being murdered.
1: Yeah, target is their grandma, that kind of
0: shit. Right. It's it's like we in some ways have been taught to conflate property and life because our lives are the property of some sort of, you know, in a lot of cases, giant corporate conglomerate.
1: Yeah, and that's that
0: at the very least subject to a giant corporate conglomerate. Yeah,
1: and like I don't know if I, if I said this on the last episode, but I definitely I think I was said something like this to you when when we were texting that um the like the people that now are now showing up and you see them in, like across different places in the country <clears throat> that are showing up to like defend Target or defend GameStop or whatever the fuck it is um, as if it's some local mom and pop business is just sort of it, incredibly puzzling to me because they're treating target as if it's a vital part of their community and not the very thing that came in and effaced and erased their community and replaced Right, it's a it's a
0: it's the mark of like corporate colonization this is not your community market
1: no like the walmart neighborhood market stores that are like smaller and the sign is green so therefore it's more a part of the community and it's just like i don't give a shit if someone burns down a target or whatever like i don't understand why you would unless you're so fucking scared and shaking in your boots at the idea of societal collapse that you think that's just some sort of harbinger of
0: doom uh in which case, like what what i help you what i can't stand is the rhetoric of a return as people like Tucker Carlson and other shitheads keep saying things like a return to law and order, which is to suggest that the uh, murder of unarmed, innocent citizens, uh, and I, I hate the connotations, the word citizen, how about just people? Uh, is is indicative of law and order. Just because it's uh, orderful or organized in your view, does not mean that it is uh, a return to the to a paradigm in which police officers kill with impunity is not a return to law and order. Uh, and if you can't see that, you're a fucking asshole.
1: Well, and I would argue that when they do that, they're not suggesting it. They're just saying that like to go back to that is, is for a lot of them kind of what they see as being law and order. Right. So for them, it is that system that kind of crushes minorities under the heel of its boot, the boot that they're, you know, has, they have halfway down their fucking neck because they love the cops so much. Um, and, And so to them, it's not that they, I think for some of them, it's not that they don't see it. It's that they fully endorse that. And for others, they're kind of, tacitly endorsing that because in the back of their head they have it wired into them that the black people are the ones that do the crimes therefore they're the ones that need to be punished by this massive you know system that we've created um and it's just uh, just things are so fucked will like i don't even it's just it's just beyond every goddamn thing (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Like, I, I, every day I wake up and I'm having my coffee and it's just like the end of no country. It, it's just <laughs> me being like, I just must be out of it. Like, I'm just not, this isn't, these times are not meant for, for people to live in.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness fucking sakes.
1: Beyond every goddamn thing, Ed Tom. <laughs> Ed Tom is just like, such a perfect character and like, I don't know, he, that's how I feel most days. I wish I was more like, I don't know, Captain America's character and Snowpiercer or something like that. But <laughs> I really, I feel like Ed Tom. Uh,
0: let me shoehorn this in. I mentioned this before we started recording, but one, one aspect of a lot of the protests has been a, uh, tearing down of statues particularly here in tennessee especially uh, nashville um, i've been reading david harvey's fucking fantastic book justice nature and the geography of difference and he quotes somebody whose last name is rossi i'm not i'm not sure that- who that is
1: oh never mind i was thinking of Uh, Rossi Bradati, but that's probably not who who you're talking about.
0: It's R O S S -S I last name, Um, and this person is writing about uh, sort of cultural myths and the role monuments play. And they write, "I attribute an especial importance to monuments." Although their significance in the urban dynamic may at times be elusive, for if the ritual is the permanent and conserving element of myth, then so too is the monument, since in the very moment that it testifies to myth, it renders ritual forms possible. And then Harvey goes on to say, Rossi's formulations open up a whole series of questions. Whose identity and which collectivity, for example, and if collective memory acquires a certain instantiation in place, and if that collective memory is vital to the perpetuation of some social order or to the visualization of some hoped-for alternative in the future, then all essentialist formations of the genius loci, or spirit of the place, fall away to be replaced by a contested terrain of competing definitions." And I think, uh, end quote, and I think what we see uh, are some of those contested definitions of, of the mythology of the place or the spirit of the place being asserted with the destruction of these monuments, which, as he says, are embodiments of the cultural myths where these monuments are.
1: Yeah, and you probably saw the uh, the video from Bristol in the UK. Where they tore down the statue of the slave owner and threw it in the fucking river.
0: I did not see that. (laughs) That sounds awesome. You
1: got to. It's it's real, real sexy. It's it's awesome. (laughs) They, you know, big bronze statue. And somebody that I saw on Twitter is pointing out that it shows you how, like, shitty and hastily these statues were thrown up as, like, symbols of authority that they're pretty easy to tear down so they you know yanked it down and like all the people picked it up and drug it over and threw it in the fucking river um, <laughs> and then you know not, not long I guess a few days you know all, all the days run together now but I think a few days before that in Louisville uh, somebody climbed up on the statue of Louis the Sixteenth, who was the you know the namesake for the city and uh, like it's a big like marble statue I guess and they broke off one of his hands and ran off with it <laughs> I mean, you know, they're all being they're all being spray painted and and covered in graffiti, which is I'm all for. Makes them nicer to look at in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah, Jensen and I were talking. I want I want the graffiti. I I I mean, I should. I'm totally in support of the destruction of these fucking monuments. Fuck them. But I wish the graffiti were a little bit more uh, creative and spontaneous and goofy, as opposed to uh, serious and, um, you know, trying to make a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, uh, maybe a better point would be something utterly fucking ridiculous. I, 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 I want to say at one point you suggested as graffiti on something. Trump's dick is bad. Uh, <laughs> I think that's, I'd nominate that, that sounds for, like me. for, for the new like tag or whatever. I just, to me,
1: I, I think it's just because, like, I spend so much time thinking and looking at things that are about, like, complicated uses of language that, to me, some of the funniest things you can say <laughs> are just the simplest. And just to say, like, his dick is bad. It's just so. <laughs>
0: Charles' dick uh, is bad. That's,
1: that's, that's the uh,
0: I, I could just, like, hear, like, ABC News reporting on this. Uh, it appears someone has sprayed Deface uh, the Monument. And tagged <laughs> it. Trump's dick is bad. We go live to the. We go live <laughs> so to the steps of. you were the... watching the news and you saw that, you would laugh your fucking ass yes. off. It. It's like, it's like, it so delegitimizes, you know, Trump because it's like we're not even talking about the shit you're doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's exactly the kind of stuff that he would say about somebody else, right? <laughs> right. It, and it, it, yeah. Zhijie talks a lot about this of like. When you get to that level of like base vulgarity, that's sometimes like the most effective ammunition against someone. Um, <laughs> and it, just imagine being like, we go live to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where, so, where someone has spray painted a message on,
0: <laughs> on <laughs> right. Honest
1: Abe, just Abraham Lincoln, uh, and then across his chest, it just says Trump's dick is bad, and like, like day glow paint. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So you get it.
1: I uh, um, the the book you were thinking that uh, Harvey's mentioning is "The Architecture of the City" by Aldo Rossi. Ah, yeah, I found. So, what year was that? Uh, it's kind of an older one, sixty six.
0: Okay. Well. <laughs> Yeah, i think a, that's all i got
1: yeah for sure and, you know there are the, we could keep going into things in things the film you could talk about like the fact that the the idea of protecting small businesses which is a big deal now is very much a part of the film when you have sals which is a small you know family-owned business and then you have the korean-owned market across the street that is almost destroyed in the same manner they kind of confront them um so that that is that is something that complicates it and sort of even though the anger of the community is definitely righteous and justified you run up against that idea of well who's to be punished for this right they they can't punish the people who directly deserve it meaning the the police the you know fucking hogs that that killed Rady Rahim uh, so instead striking out against these other people it's sort of and that's the part of the debate now is who who should suffer that wrath and who should not? Does it matter? Those are all questions that I think everybody is struggling with currently.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hmm. I, like, like I said, I also watched inside man, which is, which is a cool Spike Lee movie, but uh black Klansman, a more, much more recent film, which is uh, worth a watch as we were saying, not the greatest movie I've ever seen, but, but worth a watch. And, uh, and speaks to the absurdity of the sort of racial times we live in, um, uh, given that there's all kinds of, uh, you know, David, David Duke is, uh, featured heavily in Black Clanson and he is, you know, was, uh, a, a big name in Trump's election. So, um. Uh, Spike Lees still still doing his damn thing and uh, I, I suspect I suspect he's probably working on a documentary right now
1: well he's there his uh, his new movie called the five bloods and it's gonna be released on Netflix soon and it's it's kind of like a I don't know the plot the intricacies of it or anything but it's about a group of uh black veterans who go back to Vietnam to try to recover some some treasure or something that they buried there and I also think like the remains of their friend. And so it's about sort of generational trauma of Vietnam and and a lot of different things. Uh sounds interesting. I'll probably watch it because I don't think he's gonna make a a bad movie. Um and then Black Klansman I will say what I love about that film and what I love about films like that is how they point out the sort of inherent absurdity And just sort of ridiculousness of white supremacist movements. And specifically I'm thinking of, I can't remember this actor's name, but he played Richard Jewell in the uh, Richard Jewell Clint Eastwood movie. And he's in Black Klansmen as the sort of goofy, overweight, shithead Klansman guy. Yeah. And, you know, just is there to make them look ridiculous. And he does a great job of of doing it. Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, it also, that film also takes, you know, uh, uh, white supremacists very seriously as well, as you, you should, they're a threat to, you know, the kind of world that we deserve to live in. Um, but it also points out the just sort of just absurd, just stupidity of it all.
0: I, I did a little bit of research on David Duke after I saw that movie. And as evil a person as he is, I think something that really sort of disturbed me about him, I mean, strange compared, I mean, given how obviously evil he is, is that he had plastic surgery on his face. Like cosmetic, like recreational cosmetic surgery.
1: Did he get like,
0: a it nose job and a chin job. Is, uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> Isn't that creepy?
1: Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I white supremacist
0: think nose job?
1: I think all cosmetic <laughs> sur- the, personal opinion, I think cosmetic surgery is just kind of weird in general, unless it's like a medical necessity. Um, right. But yeah, that's definitely <laughs> incredibly funny and shows you the kind of deeply insecure people that would embrace, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I guess that's it then. That's all I got. And, you know, we we didn't watch this movie to like, it's not like, oh, watch these two white dudes solve racism. Like that's the farthest thing from what we're trying to do. We just wanted to see how Do the Right Thing could kind of inform us to better understand the world that we live in a little bit, especially now. Have always lived well, in, but now and
0: and we're of, just yeah. so immersed in this to where if we were just you know watch some bullshit climate change documentary again, it <laughs> it would have been basically dishonest.
1: Yeah, definitely. Right. <laughs> and, and, and these things do do overlap, right? This in in a lot of ways, and and we'll continue to do so. And I think if we're able to somehow te- defang this system somewhat now. Then it could be highly beneficial in the future when there's, you know, we have to deal with things like, you know, catastrophic weather and scarcity and stuff like that.
0: Well, and and I guess that was sort of the point I was getting at when I referred to like Catholic priest abuse is that. Is that uh, it's concentrations of wealth and power that allow for these for this sort of evil to be perpetuated and it's it's that very same concentration of wealth and power that rules the industrial world that rules the economy that rules empires or or is the tool of empires uh, which of course is destroying human c- cultures
1: yeah cool well
0: <laughs> cool yeah nice Hey, this is Matt
1: cutting in to clarify what movie we'll be doing next week. In the original podcast, we uh, chose a film that we just kind of decided we didn't feel like watching. So we uh, kind of did a last-minute replacement with Sorry to Bother You, uh, directed by Boots Riley. So that's what the next episode
0: will be about.